0: recovery elevator episode 381
1: meet yourself where you're at and any effort is effort
2: life is always working in your favor you can't heal in the same environment you became sick
0: welcome to the recovery elevator podcast my name is paul churchill thank you so much for joining us today On today's podcast we have Amy. She's 39 years old from Canada and took her last drink on August 21st 2016. Wow great job Amy. I want to give a huge shout out to our Cafe RE chat hosts. Y'all do an amazing job. Thank you for giving your time. I'm currently listening to a book called The Urge by Carl Eric Fisher. It's about the history of addiction and I heard something that I wanted to share with you. I often think of Bill and Dr. Bob, the founders of AA, as the ones who built the foundation for modern sobriety with the inception of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1935. However, there was an Indian man named Handsome Lake who belonged to the Seneca tribe who created a program that is strikingly similar to AA, but 150 years earlier, around the time of 1780. Now, Handsome Lake brought men together around a campfire and they spoke openly about their addiction to alcohol. They spoke about the reasons they drank, and Handsome Lake found it was the connection with other people in their tribe that pulled them out of the addiction. How awesome is that? Even the name. You don't meet too many Handsome Lakes these days. Now, there's a myth that I want to chip away at here, and that's that Indians, indigenous cultures, the aborigines in Australia, and Inuits have some sort of predetermined genetic trait, That makes them more susceptible to alcoholism than their Caucasian counterparts. This simply isn't true. Nearly all native cultures, prior to the arrival of Cristobal in 1492, were exposed to alcohol and it was a regular part of their cultures. Anasazi Indians in southern Utah had been using alcohol in their religious ceremonies for hundreds of years. It wasn't until they were dislocated from their lands, families, traditions, languages, heritage, and more that alcoholism became present. it was an issue. Again, addiction is disconnection. There are references to alcoholism and addiction with human beings for millennia, but it was the industrial revolution and the massive land grab of the 16th and 17th century that solidified addiction as a modern phenomenon like we see it today. Before we get any further, I almost forgot our sponsor today, Odette Would Have Killed Me. Let's hear from an awesome sponsor in this space, Exact Nature.
3: Exact Nature's safe and healthy CBD-based products are formulated to help you with the challenges of quitting drinking such as addictive cravings, depression, anxiety, and lack of sleep. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com.
0: Okay, let's get started. A couple weeks ago, I went to a local hot springs that has a sauna that can fit probably 15 to 20 people. There was a guy in there speaking about how he moved to Montana for a fresh start, that he just got his driver's license back after 10 years without a driver's license, and almost equal time without a drink. He said that it was after his fourth DUI, the judge took his license away for 10 years. He then said after the 10 years, it was about $15,000 of lawyer fees and court appearances in different states to get his license back. When his driving privileges were reinstated, he drove to Montana with his wife for a new start. It was a great story. My goodness. I was sitting there in the sauna saying to myself, my goodness, this guy is burning the ships in front of probably 10 strangers and he doesn't give a shit. I love it. So I then chimed in and said, yo, great job. I also have had DUIs and no longer drink. I was chatting with this guy for another couple minutes about alcohol, sobriety, When another person in the sauna chimed in and said something, and it was almost an interruption. I don't remember what he said word for word, but it was something like this. He said, yeah, but everyone is addicted to something. He then said, I don't have a problem with drugs or alcohol, but there are other things in my life that I struggle to control. And then his buddy sitting to his left said, yeah, I hear you there. Me too. The other two guys who chimed in weren't rude or disrespectful. They had something to say on the topic, and if you ask me, that four minutes of conversation encapsulates perfectly what I've seen when we open up about this stuff, about our addiction. Now here's what I mean. When one person has the courage to open up, to burn the ships, put it all out there, or be human, it gives others the floor-safe space to do the same. The first guy started talking, then I said my experience with alcohol— And then two normal drinkers said they also struggle to control some aspects of their lives. No one knew each other in the sauna. Names were not exchanged, but it was an authentic conversation. So now seems like a good time to add a quote from the interwebs. We're all addicted to something that takes the pain away. I couldn't find the source. Now there are a couple points I want to pull from this. The first one is it's a tough universe to live in. The Buddha recognized this with four out of four of the noble truths having to do with life is suffering. You're going to get your ass kicked while living on this planet. It's unavoidable. At some time, it's going to happen. It's trying to avoid the suffering with a bottle or an iPhone that only causes more suffering for all 7.7 billion of us, not just those who struggle with alcohol. The next thing is we're all addicts trying to survive. With this pain that is inevitable by living on this planet, we all reach for something to help take the pain away. I think Alanis Morissette is my favorite artist who demonstrates this perfectly. She has a song called Reasons Why I Drink, which I think she nails it. For those listening to this podcast, it's alcohol, which eventually this coping mechanism becomes the reason we can't cope with life. It's like a sad joke. For others, it's TV, it's Instagram, it's sugar, it's seasons 1 through 18 of Grey's Anatomy. For others, it's a compulsive need to spend more than they make. It's called retail therapy. Another point I want to pull from this is we all need help. Alcoholics place themselves in a corner due to a stigma that doesn't even exist. But we all need help. Even those two normal drinkers in the sauna who struggle to keep some aspects of their life in control. So we all need help. The other part is we all want to help. It's how we are wired. We are all walking each other home. It's what ensures the survival of our species. The direction I want to take this topic now is to give yourself a break. Seriously, you're still alive and you found a way to survive. Good job. A theme I've seen with listeners of this podcast is we are out of balance in terms of how we view ourselves and we are way too hard on ourselves. Do you think a deer who crosses a road causing a car to slam on its brakes to avoid a collision beats itself up for the remainder of the day? I do not think so. Be kind to yourself. Don't let your inner voice talk to you in any way that isn't how you would talk to a good friend or a loved one. There's another seed I want to plant with you today and that's that the addiction, that voice inside the head, the ego, the Bruno voice, whatever you want to call it, It's going to try to put you in a corner and A, tell you that you're the only one struggling with alcohol and B, that really nobody else struggles with this stuff. But as we covered in this podcast, everyone is addicted to something. So with that information, you're not that different than everybody else, including the normal drinker. There's a question that often gets asked when we're in new situations or getting to know new people and that's, what do you do for work? Uh, One neat thing is when I tell them that I have a podcast and do retreats in a private community geared towards helping those who want to quit drinking, it's amazing how fast people connect the dots that I don't drink. People almost always get there pretty quick that uh, I had to go through that experience as well, the addiction process. And you'd be amazed at how many people have opened up to me about other issues, about depression, about anxiety, about phobias, uh, about other mental health issues that you can't see on the surface and I have also seen their Instagram feeds, their Facebook posts, and it seems like they've got it all put together. So again, that's the seed I want to plant, is please stop listening to that inner Bruno voice that creates the separation, that creates the divide, that says we are separate. We're really not. And we need each other. Okay, before we hear from Odette and Amy, let's hear from a better way to get help. Let's hear from BetterHelp.
3: This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters, and as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy So I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash elevator. Thank you, Paul, for an amazing introduction and Recovery Elevator. Please help me welcome Amy to the show today. Amy, how's it going? Really good. Really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for dealing with my crazy change of schedule. I've been going through like a big change with my job and it's been a little bit trickier getting these in. So I'm glad that we made this work. Me too. Yeah. And let's get right to it, Amy. When was the last time you had a drink? It
1: was August 21st, 2016. So this year will be six years
3: of sobriety. Congrats. That's a huge accomplishment. Does it feel like forever ago?
1: It does. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it feels like a totally different life. Um, It feels like I've lived so much since then. And also in many ways, it feels not that long ago. So,
3: yeah. Yes, I hear you. And before we get to your story, Amy, can you just give us a little background on yourself? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What do you do for a living, for fun? Just some background on yourself.
1: Yeah, so I am from Toronto, Canada. I work professionally in the recovery space as a sobriety and mindset coach, which I've been doing for the last three, almost three years. When I am not working, I love reading and cycling and cross-stitching, which is a hobby that I picked up during COVID, which has been really fun. Um, I love getting outside and traveling, and I'm actually going on my first trip since COVID next week, so I'm super excited. I'm 39 years old. I use she, her pronouns. I am single and queer, and my roommate is my 38-year-old cat named Captain.
3: (laughs) So much good stuff here. I want to know where your first post COVID trip is going to be too.
1: Yes. Great question. So, um, I am actually going to Denver, Colorado, and I'm going to meet up with some sober girlfriends and we are going to go to awake, which is, as you probably know, a sober bar in Denver, and we're going to go hiking and it's going to be really exciting. And I can't wait.
3: Oh, that sounds amazing. I'm really glad that Mm -hmm. you get to do that. We actually have a big group of our members that live in Colorado, and they often do camping trips. And they've told me about Awake. I haven't been there myself. So you'll have to let me know how it is.
1: Yeah, I will. I'm super excited.
3: That sounds awesome. Well, thank you, Amy. And let's get right to your journey. You know, when did you start drinking? How did that relationship develop in your life? When did it progress? And what made you to maybe have a moment of questioning that and attempt to quit and get us to, to have you here with us. Tell us your story.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I started drinking when I was 16 years old. So that would be 1999, which feels like a million years ago. I also grew up in a home where my dad drank quite heavily and he dealt with addiction. So, you know, drinking and and substance use and addiction was kind of already in my orbit. So at the time, you know, I think like many of us in high school, we start experimenting with drinking and experimenting with alcohol. And so I think it started for me, like a lot of my friends, but I quickly learned that alcohol provided a little bit of relief. And so on the outside, it looked like my friends and I were probably doing things very similarly. But what was actually happening for me, like at that particular time, my parents were going through a really long, really drawn out separation with lots of extra Complication and trauma. And so I was living through this trauma day in and day out for months with no end in sight and no real coping strategies and no real support. And so drinking came as a relief. It allowed me to just press pause on all the stuff that was happening in my life that I couldn't really control. And I also couldn't really escape. And early on in my drinking days, um, I started doing things like hiding alcohol and drinking alone in my bedroom, which, you know, in, in retrospect now feels like, you know, concerning and kind of like a pink flag, especially so early on in my drinking. So as it does, my drinking progressed and increased. And that's, you know, kind of the nature of alcohol. I was drinking more frequently, um, in higher volume. I was regularly blacking out. I had, you know, tons of unaccounted for time, which is really now like scary to think about in terms of the the sort of situations that I put myself in. That I wasn't really like I was really vulnerable. So all that being said, my life outwardly looked. I would say fine for the most part. Like I finished my undergraduate and graduate degrees. I went after a lot of really awesome experiences. I always had school and a job and I was paying my bills and I was living my life. And internally, I was really struggling. And, you know, we know that alcohol is a depressant and we know that it really severely interferes with, neurochemicals in our brains, cognitive functioning. Um, And as a result, like my my mental health and my moods were really impacted. And now that I've had so much time away from alcohol, I have a better sense of what my baseline is. And I generally, unfortunately, you know, have like pretty stable moods and pretty stable mental health. But when I was drinking, that really wasn't the case. Like my moods fluctuated significantly. My mental health fluctuated significantly. And I, after a night of heavy drinking, I often woke up the next day feeling pretty indifferent about whether or not, I wanted to keep living, which is like another sort of really scary time to reflect back on. And, you know, yet that didn't really stop me. Like it was kind of like it gave me a moment of pause, but I just kind of kept progressing anyway. And I kept moving forward with my drinking and it just became integrated into pretty much every aspect of my life. It was very normal. It was very habituated. And the more I was drinking, um, the more I wanted to drink as it as it goes. And, you know, towards the end, I was starting to notice that I was drinking a little bit differently than other people. So, for example, I would go out to dinner with friends and several of them would share a bottle of wine and I would have two bottles to myself or, you know, in the last like year of my drinking, I went to two beautiful yoga festivals, like really great experiences to, you know, be present and intentional and move your body and be mindful and create connections. And I was drunk at both of them. So Mm -hmm. that was like late September or September, 2015, and then into 2016. And yeah, so just All kinds of little things started to pop up. And I was like, wait, what's you know, what's what's going on for me? So I think ultimately the turning point um, that really shifted the trajectory of my drinking and really the trajectory of my life was when my dad suddenly and unexpectedly passed away. So we found out that he had died in 2014. And that his alcohol addiction had been a really significant part of his early passing. And so I didn't immediately quit drinking. In fact, I drank a lot more to really deal with what was happening. And, you know, it was tremendously sad and I was overcome with grief. And I honestly didn't think that I could handle or withstand or endure the intensity of the feelings that I was experiencing, and so I really drank my way through that. And I would say I drank pretty heavily for the next year or so. Um, and sometime in 2015, after the acute, the acute experience of grief had passed, I was still drinking a lot. But you know, and honestly, I can't even really pinpoint when it started to happen, but. These questions kind of started to come up within me. And I couldn't help but wonder if there was more, if there was more to life than this, right? And this being addiction and drinking and spending all of my time either thinking about drinking or drinking or being hungover and just being in that cycle over and over and over. And I just something like I had a hunch that one, there was more to it. And two, that like, I should be doing something differently while I'm here on earth. Like there's, there's gotta be more to it. So over the next year or so, so I think this was like 20, late 2015 into 2016, I tried to start to change my relationship with drinking So admittedly I was, you know, Pretty half assed about it. And I approached it in a non committal way. Um, And I didn't really have a plan. So I would moderate and I would negotiate with myself and I would maybe quit for a week or two and then convince myself my drinking wasn't so bad. And then I would reward myself by drinking my face off. And I hadn't really at that point made like a rock solid decision to quit. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense. I kept falling back into the same old habits and the same old patterns for close to a year. And it wasn't until August 2016 that I finally made a real decision that I was done. And I wanted to explore what a different version of life could look like, what more could look like. And I was clear that alcohol was getting in the way of that. And I think in witnessing my dad's life and my dad's death, I also had a really clear trajectory of where my life was going if I didn't make some serious changes. And so August 22nd, 2016 is my sober date. And I'm now more than five and a half years sober. And when I initially got sober, I was planning on doing it just for six months. Um, I couldn't really like swallow the idea of forever. Um, giving up booze forever felt way too daunting. And so I was like, I'll do this for six months. And at the six month mark, I will reassess. Mm -hmm. And I told very few people what I was doing during this time because I had a ton of shame and I had a fear of failure and, the realization that i was dealing with addiction and that i had a problem was like a lot for me to manage so i committed to 6 months and then when the 6 month mark approached i was utterly terrified at the thought of drinking again and i knew that i would end up back where i started and that things would continue to get worse and so it was at the 6 month mark that i decided that i was done with drinking forever and I didn't really have a rock bottom moment, which I'm really grateful for. Um, I'm glad that I didn't wait for things to get worse before I decided to make them better. And yeah, I guess that brings us to today. So Mm -hmm. I was inspired by my own experiences. And at the time, what was really, I think, a lack of options. And so I decided to become a coach. And after sharing parts of my story publicly, my my sobriety story publicly, I got so many messages from women who said they were also struggling or they had struggled with their drinking and it just wasn't working for them and it wasn't serving them. And yet they weren't sure how to create change and how to make that change last. And I knew that there were a lot of women out there like me, and I wanted to help with that. And making the decision to get sober was not only life-saving for me and life-changing, but it also really allowed me to take my life back and to take my power back. And now I feel deeply honored that I get to support other women in doing that. So that brings us to today.
3: Oh, Amy, there's so many things that I want to go back and, and touch on. Thank you so much for sharing your life. And you know, I want to first address that I'm sorry for... The sudden loss of your father, I mean, I'm sure that yeah. was extremely sad, and I feel like those are the events that take years and processing and grieving you know grieving is such a wild thing you know it's so different for yeah. all of us so i I'm really sorry and and thank you for sharing that you know it's always really hard when you have a parent figure who struggles and then you find that you're also struggling. I say this because. Mm-hmm my dad is also an alcoholic and he's in recovery, but you know, sometimes it's empowering to me and sometimes it's really defeating. Like how has (laughs) your mindset been maybe now that you have more time, it's a little more solid, but did you ever oscillate from feeling empowered to be different to the other end of the spectrum of like, Oh my gosh, especially if you were drinking more when he passed, did you ever get those like chapters of man, like kind of the cards that I got dealt?
2: Uh
1: I would say yes and no. Like I definitely feel very empowered that I decided to change, you know, the trajectory of my life and I took my past and I used it as fuel for change. Um and, you know, kind of that idea of like cycle breakers, you know, um and not continuing on the same road. So that definitely feels very empowering. And yeah, sometimes like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale. And it talks about, you know, when children go through traumatic and adverse events, it essentially increases their likelihood for developing addiction later on down the road. And so like, sometimes I think, so I've done that test and I have a six out of 10. And so sometimes I I have... I guess I would say sadness to think about some of the things that I've gone through that sort of increase the likelihood of me developing an addiction and not really knowing that you know, I was in that boat. Like I didn't know when I started drinking that I was more likely to develop an addiction than maybe some of my peers who hadn't been through some of the things that I had been through. So yeah, I would say sadness. And then when it comes to my dad, I think mostly I just have compassion for him because I understand what it's like to struggle. And, you know, he didn't get help. He didn't he didn't get sorted in that department. And I know, and can only imagine what it's like to struggle and struggle and struggle and never find any relief from that. So I would say compassion and sadness are the, are the main feelings in that area.
3: Yeah. I, I hear you. I'm always curious to discuss with other adult child yeah. of alcoholics, kind of like the thought process. It's so, it's so complicated, especially too, when you learn not only about the A system that you shared, but I've really dug into the defects of character that I've developed because my dad's an alcoholic, you know, the the more of the behavioral coping mechanisms versus mm-hmm. the substance coping mechanisms and and saying, you know, I remember seeing this book of adult ch- children of alcoholic and it was like a tree. The image was a tree. And at the roots, there were these words on it, like, um, I don't know, connection and worthiness and all of that. And then kind of the branches were sometimes how that develops negatively. So maybe like codependence is one of the branches or people pleasing. And and it all comes from this like need, like the needs that we all have as humans. But how when if you're put in that environment, sometimes of having a family where there's someone in in the family that struggles, it kind of develops in a negative behavior even though you mm-hmm. want something positive. And, and in a way that's also been really empowering for me because you're able to kind of develop different branches and different tools and have more awareness, like you said, that perhaps our parents had. So yeah, thanks mm-hmm. for sharing a little bit of that. I know that the 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 parent and child thing is is complicated, or at least it is for me. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> from what you shared, I heard a lot of, you know, we didn't say, you didn't say the phrase, but a lot of high functioning was part of your life. A lot of, like you said, pink flags. And I love that you call, called it pink flags when you were hiding in the closet. You know, it wasn't a, everyone was noticing that you were struggling. It was more of an internal battle. So
2: mm-hmm.
3: when did you ha- start having more of a cognitive dissonance? You know, I feel like with the people who have these internal battles, there's always these negotiations of, you know, I'm not going to drink on weekdays. I'm just, you know, just all of these internal conversations, mental gymnastics. When did you maybe start entering the territory of like, you know, maybe I shouldn't drink today, but then but then you would, like you were already too late in the game to negotiate that way. And it was more of a dissonance inside of you.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say... Let's see. I mean, if I were to guess a year, I would say maybe like 2012, 2013, 2014, like in, into those years. I mean, one, I had no idea how bad alcohol was for you at the time. So it never really entered my orbit that it was like a health concern or anything like that. But I think, which like blows my mind now, knowing what I know about alcohol, but That's a side salad. Um, But yeah, the, I think for me around the time, that time, when I started to maybe think about it differently and I would set out with an intention to be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do it differently today, or I'm going to try something new, or I'm not going to drink, you know, during the week or whatever it was. And then I wouldn't be able to follow through And I think that's when I started, I was like, I'm clear that I'd like to do it differently or I'm clear that I'd like to try it and I'm still not able to actually do the thing, even though I'm, I want to. And that was, I think, yeah, I would say around that time that things just started to get like kind of confusing for me.
3: You know, and I feel like that confusion, maybe it's because I just read um, the Atlas of the Heart book with Brene Brown. And she talks specifically about how sometimes when we're confused, we get frustrated at the confusion. And you talked about, you know, a part of your journey, the years leading up to your total decision that you were, you said like half-assing it. And I feel like it is part of a lot of our journeys. And I just Mm want to speak to the listeners who are maybe there right now, because we do have a lot of people that perhaps are still drinking and listening. And I just want to, I don't know what you think, but I think that We're hard on ourselves, and even that part of the journey counts. And I know it feels like half-assy, but I also feel like we have to meet ourselves where we're at. And it sounded to me like that's what you were doing. You know, you were already drinking less, you had a different self-awareness, and you were maybe half-assing it in, in your mind. But I feel like it was still an attempt, you know? And I feel like for the people that are there and maybe are there longer term that they would want to be, You know, I just don't like for having those people to be discouraged and then be like, I can't do it. I'm just going to put myself completely out of the game. You know, I feel like like it counts.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you because I think I, I absolutely agree with you that we are so hard on ourselves. We are so hard on ourselves. And even in, in my retelling of it, I'm like half-assing it. But it's interesting because if, say, a client, for example, came to me and they were like, well, I'm trying to do this and I'm trying to do that and I'm like still drinking but I'm reducing and like I would celebrate that now, right? And so I just think it's, I think it's really interesting that like, yes, I'm super hard on myself and my retelling of that and I agree with what you're saying around like, Meet, meet yourself where you're at. And any effort is effort and it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And it can feel like baby steps or it can feel like just kind of slogging your way through it. But I think getting curious about the relationship, trying something different, all of that is progress and all of that is part of the journey. So I think that that's a really good point and I'm glad that you brought that up.
3: So thank you. No, thank you. I agree. Like you said, if it was a friend or a client, we would we would celebrate them and get curious about it. Curious about that confusion, you know, like why what do you think got you through the 2 days that you that you managed to make it and then what made you feel so self sure that you could just go back, you know, like kind of starting to do this like internal inventory. And it is a lot of work and it is exhausting. But um, Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great start. You know, it's back to also what you did when you committed to the six months, even though it was a different type of commitment, you you met yourself where where you were at, which was I only can can even fathom of six months, then I'll reassess. You know, giving yourself the permission to reassess later, I think is so crucial because I'm someone who thinks like if I make this declaration, it needs to be forever. And it's just because I'm Mm -hmm. such a black or white thinker. And then if I change my mind, I feel like a like a flake or like a flip-flop. And truly I've been really trying to allow myself to rethink things, rethink decisions, rethink scenarios, you know, it's such a gift to be able to kind of change your mind, obviously, without bullshing, bullshitting yourself, which sometimes we all do as well. But I think, mm-hmm. I think that was important, because that kind of extended to your next milestone of the six months. And then um, I do want to kind of stop there and ask you for those six months, what helped you get through the reps and get more than a couple of days in which were kind of like your previous stint? What helped you get that momentum during the first couple of months of your sobriety?
1: Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's a great question. And, um, I think the first thing for me was like a real decision and a real commitment. So not like the kind of exploratory or like, I'll try this out and see how it goes. But I was just like, I have to change. And so I don't care how uncomfortable this gets. I don't care how much I struggle through it. I just need to do this thing for six months. So I would say that for me was the starting point. And because I was dealing with so much shame and fear of failure, I wasn't talking to a lot of people. Um, But what I was doing was starting to follow sober accounts on Instagram. So specifically like other sober women, um, because it made me feel less alone. And it made me feel... you know, inspired by their journeys. And if they had sort of figured it out and gotten, gotten to the other side and created these sober lives for themselves, that made me feel like it could be possible for me. Um, So that I definitely started to do. And um, like my background is academic research and I love reading. So I started reading everything I could get my hands on in terms of memoirs and other people's stories, in terms of um, books on addiction, in terms of research, and actually learn like what's happening to our body when we're dealing with addiction. Um, what happens when we put alcohol in our body? Like, what is the impact on our liver and on our heart and on our brains and on our sleep and all that kind of stuff? Because for me, I find that you know, once I know that information, it becomes you know, you can't unknow it. And I found that that information was really impactful for me in terms of, you know, even reconsidering at that six month mark, whether or not I was going to introduce alcohol back into my life. And so, yeah, I would say those things like starting to connect with other people and find community, start to bring other people's stories into my lives and also actually educate myself on alcohol, because as you know, you probably know, there's so much misinformation out in the world about alcohol. And it becomes really hard to even make educated decisions when it comes to alcohol, because I think we're manipulated a lot around, you know, what we're told and we're lied to. And so arming myself with some information was a really powerful tool for me. And then I also, you know, got really clear that being sober and building my sobriety was a priority for me. So anything that was, challenging to that. So whether it was social situations or um, events or certain people that maybe, you know, the thing that brought us together was alcohol, I committed to like temporarily pressing pause on those things, because I didn't want the additional struggle and the additional temptation. And I started looking at my life and all the things that were actually supporting my drinking habit and my addiction. And I made some real changes in my life. And I really started to shift my priorities and what is actually most important to me because I wanted to live a different life. And I knew that alcohol was part of that, but there were also lots of other things that needed to change.
3: That's, I think, where it gets scary for a lot of people, you know, because gaining that clarity is like such a relief. And then in the same breath, you're like, crap, this means I'm going to have to let go of all of this. And I feel like it's such an emotional roller coaster. It's a type of grief of like, I want this so badly, but I need to shed all of these other parts. And that's a hard place to be for a lot of us. So I'm just, I'm really grateful that you were able to kind of like live there versus for many of us, it's like you think about it and then you kind of like put one foot in and, and and two foot back. And then it's like really hard to not only commit to sobriety, but commit to what you need to change or lose or let go of. That's like a big piece of the puzzle for many people.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I also just want to say like, it wasn't like everything in my whole life was overhauled overnight. Right. I think that would be entirely overwhelming and, and close to impossible, but it was just like little things like I'm going to have another glass of water a day. Cause like, I know I need to be hydrated. I'm going to try to maybe sleep a little bit more. I'm going to like get out and get some sunshine. Right. Like it's little steps along the way. And like over time, those little steps really amount to something big. So I just want to like add that caveat to, for folks. Cause I, I know, like, I agree, it can be so overwhelming and I don't want people to think that they have to totally change everything and disrupt everything overnight. It really is about the baby steps too.
3: 100%. You know, we, we do talk about that often in our interviews at it tends to backfire when we want to take bigger steps it it's too much and you you yeah baby steps baby steps will get you really far as long as you know consistency i think is what plays a big role with the baby steps even the glass of water like you shared so Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for mentioning that. And then I want to know, Amy, you know, I love what you shared about just educating yourself, connecting all of that. But in terms of the practicality, I feel like there's like two tracks of me. It's like what I know. And then when I have overwhelming feelings or triggers or more of a body reaction, it's hard to connect how I'm feeling with all of that, like knowledge that I already have built in. So what would you say even then, and maybe perhaps now, you know, when the feelings do kick in a a craving, a trigger and you know, a really hard moment or a challenge, what is a tool that you go to, to kind of get yourself through the moment, through the day and back to being grounded?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, honestly, in the beginning, I didn't really know, like I, you know, I didn't have a community. I was just kind of figuring it out myself. And so I would say I just like, suffered through like the cravings or the intense moments or the awful moments. And that just looked like, you know, crying and screaming and journaling and all those things. But now I would say, and also knowing what I know about cravings, um, there are other things that I would do and also recommend. So, you know. In those really intense moments, it can be helpful to create a healthy distraction for yourself, so that could look like changing your environment, going for a walk, phoning a friend that you trust, that you feel safe with, you can talk about what's happening for you, that can be really helpful playing a game on your phone, uh, texting somebody, having a dance party, getting outside, moving your body, like all of those things can be really helpful to just kind of get outside yourself and change your experience um, as the craving moves through you. And, you know, like one of the things I now know is that cravings do, and those intense moments, they do pass naturally on their own. And we don't actually have to do anything to make them be different. But I think we're so used to acting on them that we assume we have to do something to to make it stop, essentially. And I think, you know, with the healthy distractions and just finding other ways to sort of bide your time um, and move yourself through that, that can actually be really helpful.
3: Yeah. You know, and you also said, you know, crying, screaming. I feel like my mindset has changed so much as I've been through recovery, like things that I thought were tools are still tools, but there's also these other ones. Like I have a really good friend in recovery who will park her car and just scream as loud as she can. And we think that mm-hmm. maybe we'd never consider that a tool or we think that crying isn't a tool and it it can be. So I just, I'm really glad you mentioned mm-hmm. those as well, because I feel like tools are, we, you know, there's this, back to the meet yourself where you're at, you know, there's this categorizing then of like, these are good tools. These are bad tools. I remember just like last year, re-downloading Candy Crush because I was going through a really hard time um, Mm -hmm. with some personal stuff and just like being glued to my phone and had to kind of really like be gentle with myself and give myself permission to use a tool that I had put in that bucket of like a bad tool and just Mm -hmm. thinking, you know, it's it's what I need to do today. It's getting me through this moment, through this feeling it's distraction. And obviously the goal is to have healthier tools, but I also want to encourage listeners to not be so intense on the categorizing of like, Oh, this is a great tool. I'm becoming a healthier person or, or not. You know, the whole point is just getting through the day for many people, especially if you're earlier in this journey. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Amy. Well, we have reached the rapid fire round. So I have a few Mm -hmm. questions. And if you can answer these in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Say you go to a party for the first time and meet a whole bunch of people that haven't met you and they offer you a drink. What is your go-to response these days?
1: I am super sober. So no, thank you. (laughs) I love that. What has recovery
3: made possible for you?
1: literally anything and everything, like everything feels possible now that never even seemed like an option before.
3: It's like, we think that only a few things are connected to our recovery, but it's actually, everything is connected to yeah. it, which is kind of awesome.
1: Yeah, totally. And it's like the opposite of what we think. I know this is rapid fire, but I, you know, I thought my life was like over when I removed alcohol from it and actually it's expanding. And it's so much in the absence of this thing that was just dragging me down. So it's awesome.
3: I hear you. What would you say to Amy on day one, if you could talk to her or young Amy?
1: It definitely gets easier and you will end up building a life that you are absolutely in love with.
3: What's your favorite ice cream flavor? (laughs) Uh, Cookies and cream. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze?
1: Um, It is never too early or too late to change your relationship to alcohol. And you already have everything in you that
3: you need to create the change that you want. And before we depart, can you give listeners your own? You may have to say adios to booze if line.
1: I actually don't know if I have one for this.
3: That's fine. We can skip it
1: okay, sorry. I saw it in the thing and I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, And I didn't come up with anything. So I
3: apologize. No, no, you don't have to apologize. Thank you so much for joining us, Amy. It was wonderful to get to know you a little bit more. And would you like to share where we can find you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I am on an Instagram at Ms. Amy C. Willis. And my website is wholeandwell.com. So that is spelled H-O-L-A-N-D-W-E-L-L.com. And thank you so much for having me. It's been so great to chat with you.
3: Uh, Thank you so much, Amy. Have a great rest of your day. And we appreciate you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Very well, Timari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I wanna share a few things that I've been thinking about lately. You know, in eating disorder recovery, we have these metrics of progress called NSVs, non-scale victories. Now, if you struggle with an eating disorder, usually that's tied with a very toxic relationship with the scale. You weigh yourself a lot. You determine your worth based on your weight. You know, weight is a number that really affects who we are and embeds into our worth when we're in the struggle of an eating disorder. So non-scale victories are all of those ways that in eating disorder, we measure progress without the scale. You know, when you perhaps go to the doctor's appointment and all of your blood levels are healthy, or when you, you know, you choose to buy clothes that actually fit you, versus try to force yourself into clothes that don't fit you. That's a non-scale victory. You know, all of these tiny wins that we have. So I was trying to think about all of these victories in the frame of sobriety. You know, all of these victories that we can have and that maybe they can't be measured and that you don't get a chip for them or a milestone for them. Uh, Say that you, you know, finally feel comfortable At a social event, and you have fun. And that's a sober milestone. You can make a little paper chip for it, but you don't get an actual chip. Or perhaps being able to walk down the grocery aisle uh, where all of the wine is without having a physical response. Or even, you know, having put a bottle of wine in the cart and then before you check out, taking it out and putting it back. All of those things that people don't see and that are part of your experience and that are helping you rewire your brain in the opposite direction of drinking all of those are wins and i just want to make sure that you are contemplating each of these little victories giving yourself a big pat on the back and being aware that they exist in your day to day you know simply listening to this podcast you know following an instagram account with recovery quotes that are inspiring, all of those little things that you are doing to get the little snowball to roll and hopefully gain momentum and become a bigger snowball. You know, all of those things really matter. So please give yourself credit for all of those victories you've been having because I'm sure that if you look closely, you have been having them. Whether you've taken steps back and then steps forward, and then steps back again. Every single effort counts. Remember that you're not alone, and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, please believe in yourself. I believe in you. I love you guys.
2: Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. the one thing I can do, my response is always the same, burn the ships. It's these repetitive thoughts that always drive me to make the same decisions. It's these familiar decisions that always lead to the same actions. It's these familiar actions that always result in the same outcomes. It's these same outcomes that constantly result in the same emotions these familiar emotions that give you those familiar feelings and it's these feelings that always lead to the same thoughts thereby completing the cycle if you can recognize this you will be empowered to change your thinking